Thank you to Target for sponsoring this episode. Target is committed to using their size, scale, and resources to help heal and create lasting change in Minneapolis and across the country. Up next, he's an award-winning author, anti-racist scholar, professor, and much more. In his work, he wants to eliminate the concept of not racist from the vocabulary and build a just and equitable society, and believes that the only way we're going to begin that process is if we admit our racism and start building an anti-racist world. He's Dr. Ibram X. Kendi. Enjoy the show. Baker from Conversations with Shonda. I work at the Minneapolis Foundation where I've been for the last three and a half years. I have gotten many, many requests to have you on the podcast. I'm so honored and thankful that you've agreed to be with me for a few minutes uh, today. So when Makisha called and said Teach for America was bringing you, we wanted to jump on um, to support her because I think it's important that we support uh, her leadership and the leadership of the work that she's leading at Teach for America. And so a very dear, dear friend of mine, Caroline Wonga, now leads Essence. She was just named the, the CEO there. Oh, so wow. I was checking it out and I saw your wedding pictures. I think they're probably like the best I've seen. <laughs> yeah, um, that's all because it's my wife, not me, certainly. <laughs> oh man, what a beautiful bride. I'm like, that dress was fantastic. So I just thought I would say that because I was really inspired by that. Well, thank you. You're welcome. So let's just jump in. We are talking to you from Minneapolis and approaching almost a year since George Floyd. And many of us in community have been feeling like over time, especially with the elevated um, and visual nature of young Black men dying, that there was just sort of a volcano waiting to erupt. And we have seen that in the city. And a lot of it has been our inability to deal with sort of the issues around racial inequity and justice. And I'm really um, wondering, like when you saw that moment and how it kind of spread in terms of people's anger and um, frustration, and then some people just kind of coming into that issue were you at all surprised at how the energy around the Floyd death took off across the globe? I, I was I was surprised, you know, initially because I, I, I think the indeed the the energy that and the activism that sort of exploded worldwide as a result of his his murder, George Floyd's murder was unprecedented and, but the more I thought about it, the more I realized that I think there was a combination of factors that sort of contributed to it. I, I think uh, first and foremost, by 2020, before his, his murder, there had been a growing percentage of, of Americans who were recognizing the existence of racism and, you know, particularly over the Trump presidency. And I think the Trump presidency forced Americans to confront their denial um, because they were hearing and seeing racism oftentimes on a, on a daily basis. I think it was also the case that people were already reeling from 
of course, Ahmaud Aubrey's murder and, and you know, ultimately Breonna Taylor's. And, but then I also think because we were on quarantine and so many people saw the horrific video at the same time. And um, I, I think that also contributed to, to the explosion. I wonder if, you know, we're also in a city where our city council came out and said we were going to defund the police. And there's been a lot of stuff that has happened since then, good, bad, or indifferent. But I'm wondering, or I should say, sometimes I wonder whether or not a jump to defund the police did not allow for us to examine how we got here. Do you, cause it feels like we talk about it a lot, but do you think that we've been asking the right questions on how that actually happened to begin with? So, you know, I, I think that obviously I think when there's a, a tragedy of the proportion of what happened to, to, to Floyd and, and Taylor, and, and there's an awareness that, you know, policies and practices have led to these, have led to this sort of rash of, you know, of, of the murders of, of Black people at the hands of police. I think the response was, that people wanted to have was a policy response. And I, I think that the difficulties in, in making the case for defund the police is that, that activists were making that case in an America that imagined that Black people were dangerous, that imagined their neighborhoods were dangerous, and were imagining that the police were basically the border wall between them and that danger. And so in their mind, <laughs> to, to defund the police is equivalent to, to you know, busting down that wall and allowing all these animals to come run ram ram shot all over America and cause all this sort of crime. And so people, you know, I, I think I think I think what what could have been done um, was also to really challenge Americans on why they're so scared, you know, about reimagining public safety. And, and why is their response that the defunding of the police will lead to an increase in crime, i.e. black crime? You know, why do they believe that? Um, and, and why can't they see all of the data that points to the relationship between higher levels of unemployment, particularly long-term unemployment, and higher levels of, of long-term poverty and higher levels of violent crime. You know, why can't they see that relationship and transfer funding to eliminate these higher levels of, of poverty and unemployment? Yeah, I mean, I've wrestled with that one myself, right? Like I live in the neighborhood and I'm like, what do you mean no police, right? Like what happens if I need the police? And I think my examination, which I realized was way more um, personal, right? Like I was landing in both places, therefore kind of landing in no place and really wanting to be part of that conversation. I think what you're, what you're speaking to, and I was really curious on the work that you're doing around narrative. We're building that into some of the work that we're doing at the Minneapolis Foundation, but some of it is, is biases. And then we're, we're building onto it these narratives that continue to exist. And so can you say um, more on why it's important to understand 
or or to invest in narrative change work? Because I think it's important to invest in narrative change work because people are going to oppose policy changes that can actually help them and even make their neighborhoods safer because of narratives, particularly racist narratives that have been fed to them their whole lives. And, and so, or they're going to advocate for programs that don't actually have the capacity or the ability to actually solve the problem uh, that they are saying exists. In other words, they're going to, because of racist narratives, for instance, you have people who, who believe, and we've been taught this, that, that Black folks, for instance, don't save, or Black folks are financially illiterate. And that's why you have this growing racial wealth gap. So then that causes people to push for and organize programs that, quote, develop and teach more financial literacy in Black communities, not knowing that that's certainly going to help the individuals in the program, but that's actually not going to uh, eliminate this growing racial wealth gap. It's not going to close it. And, and or, you know, when there's, there's calls to transfer funding for tanks that police departments have, you know, into uh, public health uh, facilities or, or, or schools, people are going to just be fearful uh, because they have, you know, Americans ever since really the beginning of this country, they have been fed the most dangerous racist idea, which is the idea of the dangerous black neighborhood. And Professor Kendi, how does that play out for people that have been victimized by those narratives, right? Like I was thinking um, when I was reading about your narrative work about my son, uh, Dominique, my oldest, when he turned 18 and I was in my kitchen and the brother next to him looked at him and said, see, you never thought you were going to make it to 18. And it was one of those moments that is going to be forever etched in my mind, in my heart, because it's like, what would lead you to believe you wouldn't make it to 18, right? Like the level of love and support and infrastructure around you that he had been embodying a narrative about who he was in a way that I did not fully understand as his mom. And so what kind of work do you think that we, people of color that have been um, also in these waters, what type of work do, do you think needs to happen there, if any? Well, I think there's a very thin line between saying that Black bodies are endangered as a result of a racist society and Black bodies are dangerous or endangered because they're around other dangerous Black people. <laughs> uh, you know, there's a very sort of thin line. And, and I do think it is important for us to, for, for, for Black folks, uh, particularly parents of, of, of children who are coming of age and um, who are teenagers who are going to be the most likely to be harassed uh, by the police and other elements of society, um, who don't, who, who, because they have the size of an adult, but doesn't necessarily have the 20 years of, of, of being able to control one's emotions around 
a harassing officer, um, you know, it's important for, of course, uh, parents and society to, to, to have those conversations, especially uh, because we don't want those kids to end up blaming themselves. We, we don't want our, our, our Black boys, after they get brutalized by the police, to think that it's their fault, just like we don't want our Black girls, after they're sexually assaulted, to believe it's their fault. It's not the fault. <laughs> you know, of these people. And oftentimes even black folks blame these young people, um, sometimes out of anger and fear, but but oftentimes that just makes the situation worse. And, and, and so that's why we should just be so committed to fighting these larger forces of racism because in fighting racism, we're protecting our children. Mm-hmm. And speaking of the children, like what role do you think our educational system has, right, in terms of debunking um, or addressing sort of these issues of race and racism and really understanding better the historical context? I mean, if you look at the two most um, destructive and murderous white supremacist domestic terrorists of, of the last five years, uh, of course, Kyle Wittenhouse and the very young white uh, man who, who shot up those nine people who were, who were praying you know, in a Charleston search, they were both extremely young. They were both only years out of high school. You know, who knows what they were taught or what they were more so not taught in their high schools. Who knows if they would have had a course on African-American history, if, if they would have had a section uh, on, on racism, um, what type of impact that would have had in their lives. But, but we have to systematically you know, teach our young people, like we're doing our adults, that the problem aren't those other people. Because if they're taught that the problem are those other people, or they're not taught that the problem is not those other people, then what do you think they're going to grow up believing? And and when they have, you know, when they have AR-15s and AK-47s and they have a crisis, what do you think they're going to end up doing? We're literally, by not teaching our children to be anti-racist, we are radicalizing, you know, young white men all over this country. I don't know why I was surprised by the number of people that showed up at the Capitol, the insurrectionists. And I even did a podcast um, with a former sort of neo-Nazi, right, who said that Minneapolis even was, Minnesota was a hot button for recruiting. Yet I was still surprised. And I I don't know if I was surprised or if it was just a demonstration. It was like the pain, right? Like the pain of watching um, what was happening. And I think we've had a couple of moments. We've touched on Floyd and we've touched on, you know, what happened in South Carolina with the shooting. And now we see the Capitol. Do you think that these are incidents that are moving America out of its denial about race? I, I think that's what I hope. Um, I, I think, especially, I think those two incidents, the, the murder of George Floyd and the attack on the U.S. Capitol, it, it, it became 
it, the both were so undeniable about who or what the problem was. I mean, how do you, even though some people tried to do it, you know, blame George Floyd, right? You know, how how do you not put the blame on the people who violently stormed the Capitol and even the people who incited them? Of course, some people tried to do it. And, and I think it was just so crystal clear for Americans that not only we have a, a violent policing problem, but as after 1-6, it became undeniable what law enforcement, the FBI had been saying for years that the greatest domestic terrorist threat of our time are white supremacists. And, and, and so at some point, Americans are going to have to see, stop seeing terror or terrorists in people of color um, in order to make their nation safe. Well, that's a word. <laughs> um, because I think that there has been, right, there's just so many layers of, of denial that's been pointed out there. And I guess part of the work that we're hoping to do at the foundation, and I think we're all in to some degree, is how do we take an ordinary person to do extraordinary things relative to race and understanding how we need to be different, right? Like in their realm of, of leadership and where they have influence, how do, how, do, how do they work to do things differently? And so one of the things that we like to do is provide some advice on here. And so for the everyday person who is trying to become an anti-racist, um, do you have um, any sort of advice or instruction on what they should be thinking about? Well, I, I think really the, the first step in, in being anti-racist is, is doing what, what many, many Americans have just not done and that is define terms. And so sit down one day and, and, and define a racist idea, a racist policy, even racism, you know, define an anti-racist idea and policy and, and anti-racism. And then, you know, compare those definitions to the definitions of scholars who study racism and anti-racism and get and, and really memorize and conceptualize a def th those definitions. Be and the reason being is because those definitions allow us to assess ourselves. It allows us to assess whether that idea we just said was racist or anti-racist, whether that policy that's before us is racist you know, or anti-racist, and whether we're being in any given moment racist or anti-racist. And, 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 and so once we have that ability to self-assess, you know, then we can start, you know, reflecting on what we're doing and saying and, and not doing. You know, then each of us can 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 look in our backyard, in our institutions, and, and then see that the cause of disparities that we can indeed see is not, let's say, folks of color. It's the result of racism. And so then we can join with those people in that place who are likely already challenging that racism. Mm -hmm. and, and from a philanthropic space, you know, I think there's a growing movement of understanding that investments in programs itself are not bad. 
but investments and programs without understanding sort of the systemic sort of um, positioning, how did it arrive, right? Like going upstream, looking at how do we move systems while we're helping people, that it has to be sort of a two-pronged strategy. Do you agree with that assessment? Is there something that, um, that we're missing? Because people are moving into action really quick without having proximity or understanding of the historical context. Well, I mean, I, I think that I actually do think it could be helpful to simultaneously provide relief for individual people while also seeking to change policy that can bring relief to communities. And, but at the same time, in order to know what policies will actually be effective, you have to have, you know, historical and empirical, you know, a comprehensive uh, understanding and analysis of, of the problem in proposed solutions. And so, and that isn't the type of thing that anybody just knows, right? There are specific people who, who study food insecurity or housing insecurity or mass incarceration or police violence. And, and, but even some of these people may just study the problem and may not study the solution. So you really need folks who, who understand the problem and, and know the solutions that can be or have been effective. Mm-hmm. And for people that are interested in exploring more of the, the policies and, and how we've arrived there or policies that can move us forward, um, is the center that you have at BU a place that they could go to get more information um, and understand the depth of what that what that is and how they could be part of it? Yes, and indeed, we're you know one of the things we're building is is what we're calling a, a racial policy tracker, in in which we make available uh, and really show people the actual policies and practices that are behind some of the disparities, you know, and inequities in our community. And so, of course, that takes a tremendous amount of research and and specific expertise, but we just felt and we feel it's important for people to know those facts. Mm -hmm. And before we before we wrap, you have uh, a new book, um, 400 Souls. I'm very proud to have it behind me and I see it behind you. Um, I've got to, I listened to just a few minutes of it this morning on Audible, but can you talk about that book project? Sure, yeah, it's a, I mean, it's our sort of pride and joy in, in, in the sense that as 2019 approached, we were thinking of a, of a different way to really commemorate the 400th symbolic birthday as we call it. Of, of African Americans, and and we decided, well, why not bring together a community to write the history of community? And so, my co-editor Keisha Blaine and I were able to do so, and we brought together eighty writers who each took five years and and of African American history and wrote short pieces on those five years, and and even ten poets who, at the end of every forty-year section would write a poem that really captured and uh, complicated those 40 years in verse. And, and so, you know, we have a community of 90 writers who, who came together to, to, to write this, this history. And, and, you know, the writers that, that, that came together are, are, you know, many are a who's who from, you know, Sherilyn Eiffel to Angela 
Davis to Nicole Hannah-Jones to Alicia Garza. Um, I mean, and, and so, you know, we're, we're excited about this volume. Yeah. What are you hoping, who do you hope reads it and what do you hope comes from it? Well, I mean, I hope anyone who is interested in, in reading and understanding and act upon, acting upon the full, complete history of African-Americans in this country. And, and I think we wanted to make this book accessible to everyone because you know many of us have read parts of African-American history, but we wanted to provide a volume that can allow people to, to, to read you know, the complete sort of story. Um, because I think knowing that story from the beginning in 1619 to our time, I think can really allow people to understand what black people are facing today. Yeah. Um, some friends were over a couple of weeks ago and um, we were talking about roots. And like, you know, I was young and I watched the, the series and I was with someone who's like in their thirties and they're like, I've never seen the whole thing, right? Like I just didn't see it. It was a different time. You know, my family, we sat down, it was like a family deal every night mm -hmm. to watch it. So when I, I was looking through the book and I'm like, I think it's time for us to have a new series out there where, you know, I could see the different parts being family night, watching right of the history because those moments were really significant in my life and they've been um way too uh far in between um but do you envision this hopefully as someday something that we can also watch like we could have become an anti-racist i think so stay tuned <laughs> stay tuned a project of a lifetime i love it i i appreciate you in the midst of um lots of work and busyness and a brand new um uh, book, taking time out to talk with me today. Thank you to Teach for America and Makisha Nation for bringing you. You have an upcoming event with them to be how to be an anti-racist educator. Um, so again, thank you, uh, Dr. Kendi, for your time. I hope you have a fantastic rest of your day. You too. Thank you so much. Thank You're you. welcome. That's Dr. Ibram X. Kendi and Shonda Smith-Baker. And a quick shout out to Target. Thank you again for the sponsorship of this episode with Dr. Ibram X. Kendi. You can find Dr. Kendi's new book, 400 Souls, available in your local and online stores. To learn more or register for the virtual event on how to be an anti-racist educator and advocate for youth, hosted by Teach for America Twin Cities, please connect with Shonda's Instagram or Twitter at Shonda S. Baker. I'm Sue Pak Thank you for listening to Conversations with Shonda.